This is Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Just down the road from Greenville, North Carolina, where we broadcast from, is Farmville, North Carolina, just the same as the game. Further down a different road is Grimesland, North Carolina, a loser in the local unfortunate locality named Sweepstakes. But Grimesland is actually the home of Brian Grimes, whose claim to fame is being the last major general appointed in the Army of Northern Virginia in the Civil War. But Grimes' story, Brian Grimes' story, starts before the end of the war, and it ends long after. We'll learn today about the last Confederate general, Brian Grimes, from Leonard Lanier, assistant curator of the Museum of the Albemarle in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and a Brian Grimes expert, here today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful Friday afternoon in March of 2012. It's uh, spring, it's warm here in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University. But, as always, not speaking for the university, not speaking for the history department even, or anyone but myself, and I know my guest will do the same thing. We're always uh, giving you information about the show, this week as ever, on uh, impedimentsofwar.org. You'll want to be sure and check out that website and see who's coming up soon. Mark Gaffney runs that for you. If you want to help keep that website going, feel free to contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund. It's really a book and website fund, which you can do at impedimentsofwar.org. CivilWarTR at AOL.com is the name of the, uh, the PayPal address. You can send uh, $20 this way and share that with uh, the webmaster and keep, keep the website alive. Um, the last week... Uh, there was no show. It was spring break here at East Carolina, and I did not go to the beach. I did not go uh, where the students go. I went to uh, sunny Seattle, uh, where it did in fact rain, as as promised by everyone there, and got to speak to the Puget Civil War Roundtable. That was uh, a great pleasure. It was uh, fun to meet everyone there, thanks to uh, Pat Brady, who a very gracious host, and everyone else who uh, was had great questions at the meeting. We had a very interesting discussion about Abraham Lincoln and whether or not he owned slaves. Well, he didn't, but why do people ask that? 
so it was quite a, uh, an interesting time, and I appreciated the uh, the chance to visit with some Civil War talk radio listeners in person. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, Andre Flush on the show talking about the Revolution of 1861, the American Civil War and the Age of Nationalist Conflict. It's not uh, a new idea to think of the Civil War as part of a world history movement, but uh, there are always new ways to think, uh, to, to reconceptualize the war, to see it as part of the long century uh, of warfare, as part of a world movement to national consolidation. So we'll, we'll uh, see what his take is on that, something to look forward to. On March 30th, Donald Stoker will be our guest. Uh, he's written The Grand Design, looking at uh, grand strategy, the big picture, uh, the big military picture in the Civil War. Uh, I've been looking forward for some time to reading his book, and I'm happy to say I've got the chance now. He'll be on the show. April 6th is Good Friday. Uh, no show is scheduled for that day. Uh, and then April 13th, uh, again, there will not be a live show. I will be on my way to Decatur, Illinois, for the annual meeting of the Association of Lincoln Presenters. And this is a group of people who uh, would thank you not to call them Lincoln impersonators. Uh, they are uh, educators, uh, Lincoln presenters, and they meet every year uh, in alternate places, one year in a Lincoln-related place, uh, like Decatur, where Lincoln had gone, another year to some interesting city. And if they're ever in your neck of the woods, it's worth it to see a room full of 50 or 60 Abraham Lincolns uh, in their, their full attire, it's quite impressive. The young beardless Lincolns in the minority, most of them are in the stovepipe hat and the beard, but it's, it's, it's quite something. There is also a smattering of Mary Lincolns who accompany them, sometimes a Frederick Douglass uh, or a Stephen Douglass will show up. Uh, we hosted the Abraham Lincoln presenters at the Lincoln Museum where I once worked back in, I don't know, 2000 or 1999, and uh, the Daily Show covered it for Comedy Central. They our, our director didn't know what The Daily Show was. It was brand new, and I'm not sure I fully informed the director that it was a comedy show, uh, but we got permission for them to come, and, and uh, it, you can, may still be able to find that that uh, that scene online uh, uh, in The Daily Show archives of the Association of Lincoln Presenters at Fort Wayne's Lincoln Museum. Anyway, in spite of that, they've invited me to speak to them on April 13th, so that's where we'll be. So that's uh, shows coming up for the near future. We've got other guests lined up uh, down the road. Earl Hess will be with us later in April, something to look forward to very much. But today we have uh, local talent, uh, Leonard Lanier, who is in his uh, uh, real time a doctoral student uh, at Louisiana State University, one of the great centers of Civil War scholarship uh, in, uh, in the United States. But his full-time day job is at the uh, Museum of the Albemarle in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And I thought we'd start talking about that a little bit. Uh, Leonard, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, uh, call me Jerry, please. Uh, it, it would take forever to, to go by last names. And you and I have met uh, a few times. You actually were uh, an undergraduate here at uh, East Carolina in the, the not-too-distant past, I believe. Yes, sir. I was there from 2001 to 2005. And then you went on to uh, uh, get your MA uh, at Virginia Tech, uh, 
did you always plan on, on heading uh, for LSU or somewhere like that for a doctoral degree? Well, <laughs> not necessarily. I, I went to Virginia Tech. I got my MA there, studied under Bud Robertson and Jack Davis. Uh, I really wanted to study under Gary Gallagher at UVA. Um, and I also sent out applications to several other schools. But uh, ultimately, this was even before the recession hit. Uh, funding was even limited back then. This was in 2007, and the the place that that offered me the uh, the best uh, combination of, of uh, funding and expertise happened to be Louisiana State University. Well, that, that's, that's a that's a pretty good consolation prize, I would say, because uh, you know, LSU. The, certainly, listeners to this show, I would guess, 95 percent of them have one or more books from LSU Press uh, on their shelves at this moment. Uh, it's one of the foremost publishers of, of Civil War history, so you uh, uh, you can't go wrong there. So you studied with, uh, uh, you said, Bud Robertson and, and Jack Davis. That's that's a pretty good pedigree. Yes, it is. I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, did not know it at the time, but I was one of the last students that uh, Dr. Robertson had at Virginia Tech. He retired, of course, last year. Um, taught his last class. So it, it was really special to work under work under Bud and, and uh, have my thesis under him. Yeah. So uh, now while you're enrolled, uh, I recall my own experience working at uh, Fort Wayne's Lincoln Museum while I was still uh, a doctoral student finishing my dissertation. And you are uh, likewise uh, employed, gainfully employed at the Museum of Albemarle while presumably finishing the dissertation. Uh, tell us about that museum. Uh, the Museum of the Albemarle is a state-owned uh, and operated museum. It's part of North Carolina's Department of Cultural Resources. Uh, it was established in 1967 as a private museum, uh, but the state took over jurisdiction and management in 1981, and it essentially, the, the mission of the museum is to interpret the history of the Albemarle region, which uh, for legal reasons is defined as the 13-county region in the most northeastern part of North Carolina, uh, including basically what we in North Carolina refer to as the Finger Counties and the southern shore of the Albemarle Sound and the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So that doesn't quite come as far inland as Pitt County, then, where uh, where ECU is located. That is correct. The furthest west, the furthest west we come is Northampton County, which is on the North Carolina South. I mean, excuse me, North Carolina Virginia border. In fact, it's basically just across the line from Southampton County, Virginia, where, of course, Nat Turner's Rebellion occurred in 1831. Uh -huh. So it, it's uh, uh, it's certainly an era with with lots to to do with the Civil War, but before mentioning that, I, I thought I would uh, ask you about the museum's recent near-death experience, uh, <laughs> if, if you don't mind just a reference to that. Uh, yes, we we have actually been on the death watch several times in the, the past few years, which is uh, somewhat sad in a way because for years uh, after the state took over ownership in 1981, uh, we were in we in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And we were actually located in a converted uh, grocery store for a long period of time, over 20 years. Then finally, at the very end of the 20th century, 
the state decided to build us an entirely new facility in downtown Elizabeth City. Uh, it ultimately would cost several million dollars. And, uh, but the problem is, is that uh, Hurricane Floyd hit eastern North Carolina at the same time that our appropriation was to go through. And so what would have, construction was supposed to have begun in about the year 2000. It actually was delayed until about 2000, 2003, I think, was when they really fi they finally got the last appropriation, and the museum itself opened in 2005. However, because of where our, we are located, we're located in a, in a part of North Carolina that is fairly sparsely populated. Uh, Elizabeth City itself has only about 17,000 people. Uh, compared to the other museums that are under the state's jurisdiction, that would include the Museum of History in Raleigh, uh, the Mountain Gateway Museum, which is in Morganton, and uh, the two maritime museums, one in Beaufort and one in Southport, we have fairly low visitation. Last year, we only had 72,000 people to walk through the door. And because of that, the starting last year, there had been a move because of what, they can, what the state considered to be a high uh, cost per visitor. Uh, they decided there was a plan at one, at one time to close this. Uh, instead, that turned into they laid off several people. Uh, we and then there was a decision made to evaluate everything that was in the Department of Cultural Resources by a division of North Carolina's government called the Program of uh, the Program Evaluation Division, uh, which that report came out on of all things Valentine's Day, and said that the they also argued for the state to close the museum. Uh, but the subcommittee that the report was issued to decided that they would not act on the report, at least for this year. So it sounds like right now we, we've gotten a one-year reprieve. But I heard grumblings earlier this week that we have come back up in budget discussion. So at this point, it's not really known for certain uh, whether we're safe or not. But I've got my fingers crossed. Well, I, I, I do as well on your behalf. And I, I will say it's... Uh uh, a grim time in which we live as far as cultural institutions go, at least here in, in the old North State, and I'm sure that's true in many other places uh, around the country and around the world, uh, where economic uh, requirements take priority. There was uh, a, a North Carolina state senator who ran a campaign that featured uh, one of his, his TV commercials, had him railing against a museum with an exhibit of teapots. That uh, how dare the state spend money on teapots in a museum when there is, you know, who knows what he wants to spend it on, but uh, nothing. Um, so when you elect a legislature whose whose very premise is we're against museums, uh, it, it's it's tough going. And uh, I was I was glad to hear that the uh, the legislature was not going to act on the list that you your your place is on, and hopefully they will stay off it and. If they come back, we will raise, uh, we will write letters and do what's necessary to try to keep keep things intact. But it's it's unfortunate when when the state's uh, uh, government is uninterested in its own heritage. The museum itself has a lot of Civil War material. Uh, were you involved in the? And I want to make sure I have my Northeastern North Carolina museums right uh, in the return of uh, flags from Massachusetts? Uh, I was not in directly involved in that. Uh, from what I was in, the Museum of the Albemarle 
on February the 10th, uh, 2012, which is the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Elizabeth City, opened a brand new exhibit that cost uh, $150,000, which all of that money was raised uh, from private donations. Um, so it was at no cost of the state itself. But we opened a brand new exhibit on uh, the 150th anniversary of the war, um, of the Battle of Elizabeth City. And uh, one of the, or one, there's actually three flags, and they're kind of the central part of the exhibit. And, uh, but from what I gathered, how they came to us is that uh, Congressman Butterfield, which represents that part of the state in Congress, uh, his chief of staff is actually from Worcester, Massachusetts. And he found out that their GAR museum had these flags which were captured in uh, North Carolina as part of Burnside's expedition. And he heard that the museum was opening this new exhibit. Excuse me. He was opening this new exhibit. He actually contacted our director and arranged for uh, the GAR post to lend, in Worcester, Mass., to lend us the flags for the duration of the exhibit. And it runs through 2015. It's a great story that those could come back. Just to be pedantic, the, the locals in Massachusetts will tell you it's, it's Worcester. Uh, is how they say that. Um, but the, uh, uh, well, it's good to have some representatives then working on behalf of, of history uh, rather than against it and getting those those flags back we into the state. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, mean go ahead. Uh, but we actually, amongst the local, um, the local elected officials there in the Albemarle region itself, we actually have very high support. In fact, uh, when the chips were down last year, it was the representative from Washington County who actually stepped up to the plate and got uh, the funding for us to stay open for this year. He basically uh, argued that in order for some several key votes that uh, were needed to pass certain legislation that the, the majority party wanted, that he wanted the funding to keep the museum open. So. Uh, he was able to, to save us, and we owe a great deal of thanks to Representative Sparks. Uh, but unfortunately, he is no longer in office, and the representative, who has also been a long outstanding supporter of the museum, Bill Owens, uh, he is also uh, stepping away from the state legislature this year. So after this year, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, again, you know, best of luck on that score. I should point out for, for perspective uh, to those visitors who are not involved in uh, museum work, $150,000 for an exhibit on the scale of uh, Under Both Flags, which is the name of the, the exhibit at the Museum of the Albemarle. It will run there till 2015. Uh, 150000 for a museum exhibit on that scale is chump change. Uh, it is, it's really... Uh, uh, quite impressive what you've put together. I'm going just by the online version. I haven't yet had a chance to visit the, the exhibit that just opened last month, but I look forward to it. I did have a chance to uh, review the, the the script in it, uh, along with many other uh, historians who were consulted, and I thought uh, it looked like it would be very impressive, and, and I'm sure it is in person, but it looks good online. The visitors who want to see it can go to www. That all one word, museumoftheabelmarl.com, and see uh, under both flags, uh, see that exhibit. Well, 
I do want to ask you about Brian Grimes. We have not yet gotten to him, but we're going to take a short break. We will come back in a moment. We're talking today with Leonard Lanier. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding what about your business we've got a program that will help streamline your image management tune in to marketing matters hosted by yasmine anderson smith Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Leonard Lanier. He is assistant curator at the Museum of the Albemarle in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is in the eastern part of the state. And he is uh, right has written about uh, a figure from the eastern part of North Carolina. Lee's last major general, uh, Brian Grimes, uh, the namesake of Grimesland, just down the road from Greenville here, not a very far piece. Leonard, uh, looking at, at your, uh, well, now let me ask about Brian Grimes. Let's, let's get right to, to that. Um, is, I, I'm looking at an article you wrote here on, on Grimes, and what is striking about him is, is a, a, a quote you have uh, from one of his fellow officers pointing out that the uh, the only reason Grimes uh, kept getting promoted, eventually ending up as major general, was uh, quote the simple fact that better men keep dying in front of him, uh, and that the image this conjures up of uh, one after another brave Confederate officer uh, leading his troops from the front and uh, falling. Uh, bravely uh, facing the foe until finally no one is left but Brian Grimes to uh, to, to take take the lead. Is that too harsh a critique? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, his, his military background. Who was this man? Well, Grimes actually had no military background. Uh, before the Civil War, he had gone to college at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and graduated. Uh, the family kind of steered him to entering the law, but he never actually passed the bar. Uh, he spent most of his time in the war, before the war, and during the antebellum period, actually running uh, his family's plantation, which is near present-day Grimesland, North Carolina, even though 
during the time that he lived there. It was actually referred to as Boyd's Ferry. Um, so he had no military experience whatsoever before the war, uh, but he was very politically active. And when the war broke out, he appealed to, he was a Democrat, he appealed to fellow Democratic governor of North Carolina, Joe, uh, John W. Ellis, for a commission as a colonel in the state service. He actually uh, also at the same time requested that he be uh, appointed in the state militia as a brigadier general, uh, but uh, Ellis kind of shied away toward that because of the fact that he had no military experience other than what little bit he would have seen as in, in the pre-war militia, but of course that wasn't much to amount to. That said, considering the experience that Grimes had entering the war, he became a very competent officer. But he was, he was not a – the role that he was given during the Civil War is that he was a very competent officer when it came to fulfilling orders. And you see this reflected in the – what few wartime opinions have been offered of Grimes by fellow members of the Corps. The letter that you quoted was from uh, uh, Robert Carter, if I'm not mistaken, or David Carter. Uh, I think his name was actually Robert David Carter. And uh, th there was the opinion that, that Grimes was very competent in carrying out orders, but when it came to decision-making independent of uh, the command, he was, he was kind of out of his depth. And uh, you kind of see that at the very end, where he finally has become a major general uh, and on his own tries to launch this attack to break out of the pocket at Appomattox unsuccessfully because he doesn't have the wherewithal or the rationale to realize that he needs to get support from the divisions that are surround him. And because of that, the, the attack fails. Of course, he did this all on his own. He was not actually commanded by Lee or by his corps commander to actually launch a breakout, but he kind of did this on his own initiative and it failed. Uh, but as we, I'm sure we'll discuss further in depth, that this kind of became his one moment of, of uh, notoriety from the war that North Carolina would later use in the post-war period. Well, that, that uh, referring to their, the, the claim that North Carolina was uh, the last in action at Appomattox, uh, so that traces to, to Grimes' action. Just going back to before the war for a moment, um, eastern North Carolina was a, well, it was was like the entire state quite conflicted in eighteen sixty and eighteen sixty one. There were uh, there was a lot of unionist sentiment. Uh, uh, we had Judkin Browning on the show uh, a few months ago. He talked about how the neighboring uh, towns of Beaufort and Newburn had very different views on whether to secede, and uh, it depended partly on one's uh, socioeconomic status, whether you identified with the secessionists or wanted to stay in the union. Uh, but but Grimes was a, a secession man right along. Is that correct? That is correct. He was one of the tried and true secessionists, not only within Eastern North Carolina but within the state in general. Uh, in many ways, I've kind of appropriated the the literature that uh, Peter Carmichael has written on this with regard to uh, Virginians because he fits into this generation uh, that was basically had, was either college age or had recently graduated from college who saw the unionist sediment within their state as kind of representative of uh, what Carmichael calls the old fogey. And that Grimes is, is very true of this because he comes from a district of the state that was very, very unionist during 
uh, the war um, and during the run-up to the war as well. And so he is kind of the outlier uh, politically here. But at the same time, he wants to be very he, – he thinks of himself as a bigger political figure than he really is. He tries to he, – he kind of around him kind of gathers up other members of this same kind of college age or recently graduated from college uh, group of men from the area who, unlike the rest of eastern North Carolina, which was dominated by mostly small farms and the naval store industry, Grimes in the period just before the war is really trying to make his plant, his farm, because I, I use the word farm here deliberately, he's trying to turn that into a plantation a la what was happening in the Deep South. So he's one of the few people that, for instance, in this time in North Carolina that's experimenting with growing cotton on a large scale. And uh, so he's really buying into the notion of this planter aristocracy, and he sees himself as the embodiment of this. Uh, you point out even the name Grimesland is the name of the, the plantation. Uh, farmers don't give their farms a name if they're not big enough, and but he thinks that he's worth naming. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, um, just uh, – Personal detail. I was looking at your your CV here. Your address in Washington, North Carolina. Uh, I won't give the number, so so you won't get fan mail. But uh, it's the the name of your street is the same as your surname. Uh, that's not an uncommon thing here in, in Greenville. People who've lived here will live in a subdivision or a uh, an area with their names. Uh, a lot of people have very deep roots in the in the area. The Prokopoviches do not. I have to say, we've been here since two thousand three. Uh, but, uh, are, are you, uh, did your family go back in this part of the country? Uh, yes, my, my family came to Tidewater, Virginia in 1675 and they first show up in North Carolina land records about 1708. So, uh, to, to kind of put it in perspective, members of my family have lived on the same Creek in Beaufort County since the end of the 18th century. Okay, that that is uh, uh, that's something I always find. Uh, I, I don't know what the word is. I, interesting is, is too mild, but uh, the contrast. Uh, anywhere you go in the country, we we are a nation of immigrants who have just come over. Their ancestors just came over. And then we've got people who've been on the same piece of land for literally hundreds of years and. Uh, uh, so, so your ancestors were here and not far away when Grimes was uh, setting himself up as a uh, the the archetypical uh, colonel, uh, Southern colonel, at the beginning of the war. Uh, yes, and, and my it's it's funny. My my family was kind of conflicted on this on this affair. My my father's uh, family, the Lanier's, were actually fell within this kind of group of young college-age men that kind of fell into Grimes' orbit. And as we'll see, uh, as I'm sure as we our mm -hmm. conversation continues, they're going to be the people who are going to be seen as firm Grime allies, uh, both during the war and after the war. On the other hand, my uh, paternal grandmother's people, who were the Williamses, they were firm unionist before they were Whigs before the Civil War, they were Unionists during the Civil War, and they were Republicans after the Civil War. So they they represent the other faction 
that was that divided Beaufort County and Pitt County during this period of, of intracite or interfractional warfare that basically starts in the antebellum period and then runs all the way up to essentially the beginning of the 20th century. Wow. Well, that that, uh, that that does create that personal stake. That's uh, I find that fascinating. Is the word I was looking for a minute ago. Uh, so. Grimes wants to be uh, wants to be uh, an important officer. Uh, does lead the abortive attack at Appomattox, which uh, fails as it could hardly have succeeded, and that that brings his military career to an end. But uh, the fighting does not stop. And and I talked a bit about ways to reconceptualize the Civil War during the introduction. A lot of people. Uh, uh, now present it as not ending in 1865 because not only is there political fighting, but there's actual military conflict. There, there's, there's violence for the next uh, uh, dozen years, at least. Uh, what goes on in uh, in Eastern North Carolina? What does Graves come home? For, I'm sorry, what does Grimes come home to? Well, the the funny part about it is that Grimes actually does not want to return to Pitt County. He actually, his family during the war had moved to. Uh, Raleigh, and he actually goes to Raleigh, and he tries to create a uh, a political career as a uh, representing Raleigh in the state legislature. However, unfortunately for him, Robert David Carter is who had been a antagonist uh, within the Confederate Army is also in Raleigh, and he's also fighting for the same uh, representative seat, and therefore, um, because of that, Grimes. There's this very interesting confrontation that happens in the downtown uh, Raleigh Hotel where Carter basically beats the living daylights out of Brian Grimes. And Brian Grimes has to quickly, he, he gives his leave of his supporters in Raleigh and returns to uh, his farm in Pitt County, uh, which he had actually leased out during this period to a northern investor of all people. Um, and... Pause it there. <laughs> so, well, well, I guess we'll keep the story going. He so Grimes, uh, he begins an attempt at a post-war political career uh, in Raleigh. That goes nowhere. Uh, what's his next step? Uh, well, he returns to he returns to Pitt County, and and he finds that uh, Pitt and Beaufort County, uh, like I like I uh, mentioned earlier, is a was a stronghold of the Whig Party before the Civil War. It's a stronghold of Unionists during the war, and it's also a stronghold of Republicans after the war. And these are Republicans that are not only former slaves, but they're also a very large white population uh, of, of, of men in both counties that are Republican supporters. And many of them, amazingly, are actually Confederate veterans. Because what had happened was before the war, these men had been Whigs, and they never they see the Democrats as responsible, Democrats like Grimes, as responsible for the war, which has devastated not only their lives and their economies, but the existing social construction in the South, which, of course, was built upon white supremacy. And so they are very ambivalent toward Grimes, because Grimes, following the key of other leading uh, Confederates and and, Democrat, uh, and pre-war Democrats are trying to rebuild this notion of a uh, of a pre-war uh, social structure where you have these elite planners followed by this mass of you know poor white farmers 
but of course, like I said, there's this majority of the population that does not want to see that happen. And so his, his party goes absolutely nowhere once he returns to Pitt County, which kind of surprises him. If you look at the letters, you know, between him and a, and a big uh, lieutenant of his who was named Thomas Sparrow, they're, they're kind of aghast. They're both former Confederate officers, and, and they're mystified that there's white people who are supporting black candidates for the legislature in eastern North Carolina. And uh, they just see this as some kind of, you know, unnatural alliance. And because they can't defeat it politically at the polls, they resort to violence. And Grimes, uh, along with Sparrow and other leading members of this kind of pre-war emergent aristocracy, a lot of whom had actually been officers in the Confederate Army, they quickly form uh, the local uh, chapter of the Ku Klux Klan and begin to target these Republican uh, politicians, both white and black, who are representing the uh, the state, both in the legislature and in local offices. And what I find interesting, uh, and, and Reconstruction as, as an era is, is nowhere comprehensible unless you get down to the immediate local details because it's so different everywhere, but in, in eastern North Carolina, the Republicans, uh, black and white, fight right back, uh, and they do not, they do not bow to the Klan. Exactly. There's this very humorous incident, or at least it's humorous to me, of a uh, of a pre-war Whig who had been a unionist during the war, who after the Civil War becomes a Superior Court judge. His name is Edmund Jones, but uh, the Klan nicknames him Jaybird Jones. And he is the Superior Court judge responsible for the district which contains Pitt and Bogart County. And he had arrested J.J. Laughinghouse, who had been one of Grimes' Klan uh, lieutenants. And he had arrested him and thrown him in jail. And the Klan decided that they were going to break or uh, basically intimidate Jones into releasing Laughinghouse. And so the day of the trial uh, of for uh, Laughinghouse's offense, uh, Jones comes to the bench and the Klan packs the courtroom. And immediately when Laughinghouse is brought out, he begins to threaten the judge, saying that unless you release me, you know, I have friends who are in this courtroom and we are going to wreak havoc upon you and upon your family. And Jones actually lets Laughinghouse talk for about three or four minutes, I suppose, based upon the transcript that I've seen. And he goes into the fact that this was a white man. Laughinghouse goes into the fact that this is a white man's country and that Jones is trying to make it a black man's country, so forth and so on. Finally, uh, Jones gavels Laughinghouse quiet. And then at that moment, a armed regiment or an armed group of black union leaguers come into the courtroom and arrest several members of the clan that had been in the courtroom, but they interestingly let Grimes go, even though by far everyone knew that Grimes was the leader of that particular chapter. And Jones told him, uh, requested that Grimes appear before him. And then Jones said that if you come into this courtroom again with armed men, you will spend time in jail. And then he let Grimes go. So like you said, this is clearly an incident where, the Klan, yes, used violence, but they were also facing men, both Confederate veterans and black men who had fought in the Union Army, who were also used to violence. And they were not adverse to using violence 
uh, against those who claimed who were attacking. Well, we'll get to another act of violence, the uh, demise of Brian Grimes, uh, but we'll have to wait for our next segment. We're going to take another short break. We're talking about uh, Major General Brian Grimes with Leonard Lanier from the Museum of the Albemarle in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking with Leonard Lanier, uh, the assistant curator at the Museum of the Albemarle in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, about the life of Brian Grimes, Lee's last major general. We talked about Grimes' brief and unspectacular military career, but we've also been talking and we'll continue discussing his uh, interesting post-war career. A representative, uh, Leonard, as you noted, of the, the young generation, the young Virginians, as, as Peter Carmichael has identified them. Uh, likewise, there were young North Carolinians who uh, were a generational cohort that was virulently secessionist and after the war was trying to restore the power structure uh, that, that from which they would have benefited before the war. And we were ending with some discussion of the conflict between uh, Grimes and his allies, uh, Democrats, white supremacists on one side, and the new Republicans, uh, both white and black, uh, on the other, which uh, culminates in the assassination of Brian Grimes. Uh, tell us about that. Well, the, uh, the Democrats were able to elect a legislature in 1872 that was a majority Democratic legislature. So in 1872, they changed the law, which removes the elected off county level elected offices from local control. They make these instead of being elected offices, appointed offices. And with that, the these local positions that they had dominated down here in the eastern part of the state, uh, because of their numbers, the fact that white Republicans and black Republicans or black Republicans were a majority, they lose those offices because these are now all appointed. And one of Grimes's uh, associates is made the justice of the peace in both Beaufort and Pitt County, which justice of the peace is kind of looked on as kind of a, a very minor office today. But back in the 19th century, North Carolina, these were major offices because the justice of the peace appointed 
not only the county commission, but also the Board of Education, and he also had a hand in selecting the sheriff. So with this, there's got, there's, you have, in these two counties, you have Republican majorities, but they're ruled over by these Democratic appointed, office, uh, appointed officials. And this leads to a lot of antagonistic uh, violence between the two, and in, in, in which the, you know, the, the Democratic officials will target Republic official, Republican officials who will then uh, retaliate by attacking Democratic uh, officials. And this kind of goes on and, until it kind of reaches a, a bloody climax at the very end of Reconstruction. And, of course, Reconstruction is typically considered by historians to end in 1877 with the Compromise of 1877, which pulls federal troops out of the South. But as I think more and more historians are realizing, that's too nice of an endpoint. Uh, and that's definitely the case in eastern North Carolina because, one, the state was redeemed long before 1877, and secondly, because the violence that is precipitated by the war and that continues on through Reconstruction continues on after 1877. And that's certainly what happened in, in Beaufort and Pitt County because in, uh, in Pitt County, Grimes and this kind of uh, emergent planner aristocracy before the war has tried to reestablish themselves. So they are creating uh, these kind of large commercial farms that are beginning to transition over. This is a period of economic transition in this part of the state, transition over from naval stores over to the production of flu-cured tobacco. But this is a period where the sharecropping hasn't yet fully been established. So Grimes has had to hire out these huge uh, groups of, of black farm workers who he treats like his own personal slaves. And, of course, this factors into this whole antagonistic relationship between the Democrats and the Republicans. And it leads to incidents where, first, uh, Grimes' uh, warehouse is burned, and then some wells on his property are poisoned. And after each of these incidents, uh, including one notorious incident in Falkland, which is in the northern part of Pitt County, uh, hooded riders actually ride to a Republican barbecue in which a white Republican is going to be speaking before a mostly black audience and shoots up the place and kills about four black Republicans. That happens in the very end of July, 1880. In August of 1880, on August the 14th, in Beaufort County, the local Democratic uh, convention is going to be held to select uh, people as to uh, nominate individuals to serve in the state legislature. And Grimes, his plantation lies right on the border between Pitt and Beaufort County. Even though his residence is in Pitt County, he basically, because of his land in Beaufort County, he could be elected as a delegate to the Beaufort County Convention. And he is, he goes there, and there's a major split between the Democrats at this time. There are some who are the moderates. These were mostly people who had been Whigs before the war. And they are seen as trying to form some kind of agreement with the white Republican and, and, and offer an olive branch, so to speak, to them. Grimes, on the other hand, are the hardcore white supremacists who are saying that there will be no quarter given, that until the, you know, the white Republicans realize that they have no hope and that 
that they needed to give up their black political allies, that, you know, that this, this war was going to continue. Grimes' candidates are actually elected that night. The convention holds their election, and Grimes' candidates are all selected. And so he kind of, he stays around in Washington and sort of celebrates, Washington, North Carolina, that is. And he then, uh, he and a neighborhood um, hired hand, white hired hand, then get in a wagon and start to go back toward Grimesland, toward his uh, home. They get to a point where they have to cross over a creek, which is most of the year is basically just a wide ditch called Bear Creek. The wagon slows down, and uh, Saddlewhite, who was the white traveling companion of Grimes, claimed that Grimes said, who is that in the trees? Who are you? Show yourselves. At that very moment, there's a shotgun blast, and Grimes falls over in, into the actual bed of the wagon. This, of course, spooks the horses, and the horses take off toward Grimes, and, they, and Saddlewhite is not able to actually stop them until they get to a small uh, shack owned by one of Grimes' farm laborers right up on the edge of, the, of Grimes' property. And the, the farm worker comes out with a lantern, they shine it in the back, and by the shotgun blast has basically severed one of Grimes's arteries, and he's dead in the back of the wagon. Wow! So that, so he's he's uh, murdered at the crossing. The you, you quote some of the uh, bystanders recorded as saying uh, things like, uh, oh, the old son of a bitch got what he deserved," or uh, "I wish I'd bushwhacked him myself." So. So I gather there's not an outpouring of public grief at this murder. No, I actually believe it or not, the, the services, the, there is so much consternation about what is going to happen that the service is actually privately held and he's quickly buried uh, about the very next day. Uh, there's not a big outgrowing of, uh, of grief over him uh, because, you know, this is an area which sees the majority of people see him in a not so positive light. Mm-hmm. So, so that's uh, that's it for him. But uh, sort of leaping ahead into the the modern lost cause era, he's he's not remembered uh, by biographers or, or people in Grimesland as uh, the the local clan leader and, and white supremacist and would be plantation uh, mogul. But he is still thought of often as least last general. Uh, talk a bit about the monuments to Brian Grimes. Well, there's there is a uh, a large monument which is, uh, of course, there's a gravestone marker on where he's buried at Grimesland, but very few people see that because Grimesland is privately owned. But right next to Bear Creek, basically very on not very far away from the spot where the murder happened, uh, his family at the very end of the 19th century erected this large marble obelisk which says you know which commemorates brian grimes it has the dates of his birth and death and then it says at the very bottom assassinated august the 14th 1880 very dramatically and and uh, i've i kind of explained this based upon other you know uh, people including my major advisor gaines foster who i i interpret this monument as kind of then the grimes supporters cementing in marble their version of events. And so the, the 
who the person that is drawn down to us through history is not the clan leader and not this person who was derided within his own county, but this person who was an upstanding member of the lost cause and uh, who someone who fought for what he believed in. And, uh, and it, I also see it as also a, not only that, but it's kind of a dual warning because the area where this happened was a stronghold for the Republicans. And so this is also, I think, seen as a stone warning symbol of, you know, don't mess with us. We we are the dominant narrative here in this section of the state. Well, uh, now Gaines Foster, who wrote uh, Ghosts of the Confederacy, is another uh, a real pioneer in the analysis of the lost cause. So your your pedigree is is impressive indeed. You've got some some good people to have worked with. The uh, the the son of Brian Grimes has a lot to do with his reputation being uh, uh, turned away from the post-war era and focusing on his his Confederate career. Yes, that the uh, the two main people who kind of the, there well there's several people who are or who create kind of this myth of of Brian Grimes as as this great Confederate figure. Uh, one is his uh, uh, widow Charlotte Grimes. And also uh, J. Brian Grimes and Junius Daniel Brian Grimes, who of course is named after former Confederate General uh, Junius Daniel. Uh, the all of these 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 people, Grimes's immediate family, they in the period for roughly twenty years after Grimes's death, they are actively promoting not only the mythification of Grimes but also the political destruction of his opponents. So they, and not only that, the two Grimes sons, that would be J. Brian Grimes and uh, J.D. Grimes, they use the, basically the spirit of their father, this martyred figure of a famous general from North Carolina, to basically motivate their own political careers. In fact, J. Brian Grimes eventually becomes the Secretary of State of North Carolina and uh, was a big mover and shaker within the state's Democratic Party for about 40 so, 40 so years. And, uh, but they are actively giving out speeches. There's a, his widow, Charlotte Grimes, produces a um, book of his letters that were written to her during the war and that kind of reiterate this figure of uh, almost an Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott-esque figure of, the, the great, you know, knight who has gone off to defend hearth and home and, you know, who's faithfully writing to his wife about the, you know, what we are fighting for and we, we are waging the good struggle. And, and it's, it's all kind of a creation. And the Grimeses are fortunate in the fact that, to be quite honest, in North Carolina, there's not really another outstanding figure that the state can use to kind of epitomize the lost cause. Because basically, other than Grimes, another, the only other major figures who who uh, survived the war are D.H. Hill, who is not really North Carolinian, he's born in South Carolina, and Braxton Bragg, who exactly doesn't have a very large fan club. So Grimes becomes kind of one of the epitomizations of the lost cause, as it is expressed in North Carolina. Well, you, you, you note that it was in, in 1887, that's when the current town of Grimesland gets its name when Boyd's Ferry is, is changed to Grimesland, which... Uh, I drive through whenever heading east from uh, from uh, Greenville, and that uh, 
if you come to the uh, the historical library here, the the North Carolina section of the Joiner Library on the campus of East Carolina University, there's a portrait of Brian Grimes, which I think was dedicated with some fanfare at one point, and now it has a, a place of honor. But I wonder how few people know much about the story. With just our last few seconds left, let me ask you, do you see your research leading toward publication uh, to, to bring the Brian Grimes story uh, to the world? Uh, yes, I definitely would like to see this, at the very least, as an article. Um, I've, I've presented variations of it at the Southern Historical Association and uh, at other major academic conferences, but I really would like to see this as a book that details the... Uh, the story, not necessarily of Brian Grimes's military career. In fact, there's a very there's a very good book by a communications professor in East Carolina called P. Harry Allen, who he wrote a book a biography of Grimes back in the late 90s. It came out in 1999, and uh, he he covers Grimes's uh, military career very well. Where where the story is to be written is of this period after the war, where Grimes is this key figure not only in the white supremacist campaign to redeem the state, but also in the memorialization of the Confederacy and the lost cause. And uh, that would be what my book would be about. In fact, I'm working kind of already got a title in mind, something along the lines of killing the general, I mean, uh, excuse me, killing the Klansmen, remembering the general. uh, Well, that that sounds like a good title. And I, I, No listeners will look forward. We'll be the first ones to know who it's about and what it's about and the first ones to go out and get it. Uh, Leonard, thanks so much for joining me today on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. It was good being here. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.